Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Ruth, the eighth book of the Bible, the book of Ruth. Today, I just want to introduce you to this book. We're not going to dive into any one particular verse. We're going to do a little overview of why we're studying this book and what this book is really all about. And frankly, we need this book after studying the book of Judges, right? We need this book. The book of Ruth, one commentator says, is a pearl in the pig pen of Judges. Judges is rough. It was a great study, and I learned so much, and my love for Jesus is greater because of our study through Judges. So I loved our study through Judges, but it was despairing. And Ruth is the redemption of all of those moments of despair. Ruth gets its name from Ruth, the Moabite woman who is the central figure in the story. It's actually one of two Old Testament books that are named for women, Ruth and Esther. And Ruth is the only book of the Bible to be named after a Gentile. Only book of the Bible to be named after a Gentile. It's one of the five books that are read at Jewish feasts. This is a very important book for Jewish customs. They read Esther at the Feast of Purim. They read Ecclesiastes at the Feast of Tabernacles. They read Lamentations at the uh, commemoration, the, the remembering of the anniversary of the destruction of the temple. They read Song of Solomon during, uh, interspersed during the Passover, and they read the book of Ruth during the, week, the, the festival of weeks or of Pentecost during harvest time because Ruth was a, uh, a book that was written about the harvest and when the harvest was happening, and you'll see all of that as we go through it. It's a very special book for uh, Jewish people. We don't really know who the author is, a human author, I should say. We don't know because there is no uh, specific mentioning of the human author. The two people that are highest on the list of who it might be are Samuel and Nathan. My guess is Samuel. But the good news is, though, we don't know the human author. We know the divine author. We know the author behind the human author. This is God's inspired word. And the time frame for this book you can see in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, it's during the days of the judges. So during the period of the judges is when the book of Ruth is taking place. Boaz, who we're going to meet in this book, who is also the central figure of the book who ends up marrying Ruth, Boaz is a contemporary of Gideon. Uh, so you remember Gideon and the Midianites? Boaz is a contemporary of Gideon. In fact, one of the favorite like, fan fictions about the book of Ruth is that Boaz was actually a member of Gideon's army, fought with Gideon, and he was returning from war uh, when he shows back up at his house to harvest. Now, we don't know if that's true. It's a cute fiction. If it is uh, real, that's awesome. But we do know that he was a contemporary of Gideon. We know that this is during the period of Gideon's judging. So that would mean that this book took place over 3,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago. And so that begs the question, can a book that was written over 3,000 years ago have anything to say to us today? Can it have anything to give to us? Does it offer us anything? Is it relevant? That's a huge buzzword today, right? Is it relevant? No, this is so archaic and old. Let's throw it out because it's not relevant. No, I, I believe that this book is incredibly relevant for our lives. And just like we studied the book of Judges and we saw things from that book so many years ago, over 3,000 years ago, that pertain to us today, we're going to do the exact same thing with the book of Ruth. 
We are going to see the sovereignty of God because that never changes. We're going to see the gospel because that never changes. We're going to see God's powerful word because that never changes. And we're going to see the impact that has on us today because that never changes. So this morning, we're going to look at eight reasons. It's the eighth book of the Bible. So I figured let's go with eight reasons for why we need to study this book. But as we go through these eight reasons, I want you to think of these eight reasons with the backdrop of the book itself. We couldn't do this with the book of Judges, because Judges is 21 chapters, very long, lengthy book. But we can do this this morning with the book of Ruth. The best way to get you to know about the book, to get you to see it, to understand it, to be familiar with its themes, are just simply to read it. Four short chapters. It'll take us about 10 to 12 minutes. But let's do it together this morning, and then we'll ask God's blessing on not only our time today, but on this sermon series as a whole. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab, and they remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth, and they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord has visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Return, go, each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them. And they lifted up their voices, and they wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hoped, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from Mary? No, my daughters, for it's harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more to her. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, 
For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, after one in whose sight I might find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they also said to him, May the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? The servant in charge of the reapers replied, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from morning until now. She's been sitting in the house for a while. And Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When they are thirsty, go to the waters jars and drink from where the servants draw. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your sight? That you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner. Boaz replied to her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. And how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come up here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and she served, he served her roasted grain and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. When she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servant saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not insult her. Also, you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it so that she may glean and don't rebuke her. So she gleaned in the fields until evening and then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. So she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. So she took it and gave it to Naomi, what she had left after she was satisfied. Her mother-in-law then said to her, Where did you glean today, and where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed to the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. And again, Naomi said to her, the man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. Then Ruth, the Moabitess, said, furthermore, he said to me, you shall stay close to my servants until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maid so that others do not fall upon you in another field. So she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. 
Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were? Behold, he, is win he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. She said to her, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came secretly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled, bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you are an, a woman of excellence. Now, it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. So remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down and wait until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Again, he said, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it. And he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her, and she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, Do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then she said, Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and I after you. Then he said, I will redeem it. Boaz said, On the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased in his inheritance. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I was jeopardized my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself that you may have a right of redemption for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man would remove his sandal and give it to another. This was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife 
in order to raise up the name of the deceased in his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. All the people who were in the court, all the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life, and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse and the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram, Abinadab, and to Abinadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. Father, this is a profound book with so many precious promises inside of it. But we need spiritual eyes to see. And so we pray as we pray every Sunday morning, Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful, law, wonderful things from your law. Even in the reading of your word, it's better to just read it and let your spirit do the work that he loves to do and point us to our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. But now over the course of these few weeks and months that we have together in studying this book, we want to carefully comb through every word that we see to pull out all the precious treasures and gems of your glory that are hidden in this book. Father, as we begin this study, I pray that you would encourage those who, like Naomi, have had things stripped away from them and are despairing, and are functionally telling the world, just call me Mara, my life is bitter. Father, I pray that they would be like Naomi in their struggles, in suffering and trials, that they would point out the fact that you are behind everything. You are a sovereign God. God, I pray that you'd bring encouragement to the brokenhearted, that you would fortify the souls of those who are about to endure suffering, and we know all of us are going to go through hardship. So give us a deeper understanding of your sovereign providence. And give us a, just a taste this morning of the glories that we're going to see in this precious book. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Redeemer. Amen. Eight reasons why we should study this book. We're going to go through them quickly, but eight reasons. Number one, Ruth is God's word. 
Ruth is God's word. Again, Samuel and Nathan might be the authors. We don't really know the human author, but we know the author of this book, and it is God himself. When Paul wrote 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed, it's inspired by God, and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, Paul is thinking of the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth has that same promise attached to it. It is holy scripture. It's profitable. So as we go through this book, we're going to see doctrine. We're going to see reproof. We're going to see correction. We're going to see how we can be equipped. And because it is profitable in doing that for us, it will equip us to help others as they go through difficulties. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, Paul says, These things in the Old Testament were written down as an example for us. So we have examples that were written for us to follow. We have examples like the book of Judges for us not to follow. And then Romans chapter 15, verse 4, Paul says that whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. This book was given to us to have hope. Brothers and sisters, we have hope in Jesus Christ and in God's sovereignty over every single molecule in the universe. And this book was given to us to give us hope. Hope. God's word is the rock to stand on when the terrain of life feels like quicksand under our feet. It's an anchor to hold us down when the tides are ripping through us. It is so precious, and the book of Ruth is scripture, so it will do this for us. We've talked before about historical theology and people that died to preserve scripture, to translate scripture, that were burned at the stake because of the scriptures and their love for the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, we have this book in our hands because people were martyred in their attempt to keep this book going. People died so that we can study the book of Ruth. People died so that we can study this book together. And Lord willing, over the course of our study together, your heart will be so infected by a love for the word of God that you're going to begin reading and reading and reading. You're going to begin going deeper and deeper. I, I just, I have to point out this morning, as our brother Marty was uh, teaching us this morning in our Sunday school hour, I just could not wait to get up and preach. And I could not wait to get up and read the book of Ruth. Because our brother Marty was encouraging us with, this is the truth of God's word. And just as our brother infected me with a love for God's word and a desire to get up and to preach, I pray that this sermon series would infect you with a love for this book. Not just Ruth, but the entirety of the Word of God. Number two, not only is Ruth God's Word. Number two, Ruth is a powerful story. Ruth is a powerful story. Stories are powerful. Just think of Nathan going before David. Do you remember that story? When Nathan goes before David... And Nathan tells him the, the, the whole story that he made up about the little uh, lamb that was taken, that was stolen away, and, and David gets it. Nathan says, hey, that story, remember? David says, oh, that, that man who stole that person's lamb, he should be killed. And Nathan says, you're that man. You stole somebody else's wife. And David repents. Why? Because of a story. A story got his attention. Think of Jesus' parables. All of Jesus' parables are stories that grab you, they grab your attention, they teach you truth. There's almost a safety in the story, and then all of a sudden it hooks you in and it grabs you, and it says, oh, what you thought was happening, it's the opposite. We love stories. Why are they so powerful? Two reasons why they're powerful. 
Stories are powerful, number one, because they engage us. They draw us in. They help us use our imagination. One writer says, a good storyteller turns an ear into an eye. Stories help us see things in ways that just specifically telling the truth wouldn't. Again, our brother Marty this morning said, the, the Bible opens with a story. The Bible is a story, and the Bible opens with an account of a story. The Bible doesn't say, in the beginning, God was omnipotent. The Bible says, in the beginning, God made everything. And so you come to the conclusion at the end of that chapter, oh, God's omnipotent. He's all-powerful because of a story. So they're, they're powerful because they engage us. They draw us in. But they're all, also powerful, number two, because th they can sneak up on us and catch us by surprise. And this story is going to do that. It's going to sneak up on us and it's going to catch us by surprise. It's going to disarm us with a little bit of charm and then it's going to just set the hook in and grab our heartstrings. They engage us. They expose us. More than 70% of the entire Bible is stories. Narratives is how we call them, but it's stories. It's, it's real stories. It's not make-believe stories, but they're stories. More than 77% of the Old Testament is stories. In this book alone, in Ruth, Ruth is 85 verses long. 55 of those 85 verses are just dialogue between characters. It's just conversation in the midst of the story. There's 1,294 words that make up this book, and 678 of those are spoken by the characters, just playing back and forth with one another. In fact, your Bible has these split up into four chapters. And this is actually a really good designation of the chapter breaks because there's four main acts in this book. You could kind of see it as we read through it. And each chapter is one act with three scenes inside of each act. There's a beautiful storytelling nature to this book. It's a very, very powerful story. But that leads us to number three. So not only is Ruth God's word, and not only should we study because it it's a powerful story, but number three, and this has to go, this is kind of a 2A, if you will, but this is number three, Ruth teaches us how to interpret stories. This book is going to teach us how to interpret stories. We find imperatives very easy to interpret, right? You read the book of Ephesians, and it just tells you this is what you should do. Husbands, love your wives. Uh, that's it. There's no story to it. It just tells you what to do. Epistles are much easier to read because it feels like we've gotten something out of our time in reading. It tells us what to do. What should we do? Okay, it tells us what to do. We're good to go. I can do that. But you read a story and you wonder, what am I supposed to get out of that? What am I supposed to understand as I've gone through that? And that's why we studied the book of Judges to be able to learn how to interpret Old Testament narratives. And we're going to do the same thing here in the book of Ruth. If you don't read these stories correctly, if you don't interpret them rightly, then you will apply them incorrectly. Um, that's why cults exist, by the way. They take the Bible and they interpret things incorrectly and they come up with wrong application because of the wrong interpretation. So simply having a Bible in your hands doesn't mean you understand the meaning of Scripture. To understand authorial intent, you have to apply the principles that we're learning in our Sunday school, how to study these things rightly. And that's why these two series are working perfectly together. Let me help you out just right off the bat, with three things that we need to be looking for as we read Old Testament stories. This will be very quick, but just three things, three levels of understanding from each Old Testament story. Number one, there's the individual level. There's characters, and we're going to learn from characters, what to do, what not to do. But that's where most people stop, 
And that's the danger. That's what we didn't want to do in the book of Judges. Just stop there with what should we do, what shouldn't we do. We learned a lot of that. But that's not, that would just be saying the book of Ruth by itself is its own scripture. It's, it's the only book that's in the Bible. No, no, no. The book of Ruth is in the entirety of the Bible. So there's a flow of the story. So we have to interpret, number one, the actual individuals. And then number two, we look for how does this book tell me uh, God's relationship with his chosen people? What does this book tell me about God's relationship with his chosen people? You, you come to the end of Judges and you're wondering, are God's chosen people even going to be around? And the book of Ruth is going to tell us, yes, they're going to be preserved and how God's going to preserve his people. But again, you haven't gotten the whole picture if you just have individuals and how God works with his chosen people. That's why you got to go to number three. The third level of interpretation is characters, how God works with his chosen people, and then how God redeems fallen humanity. And all three of those things we're going to see so clearly in the book of Ruth as we go through it. In the book of Ruth, we're going to see so much beauty about God redeeming all of humanity, not just his chosen people, the Jews in the Old Testament, not just his chosen people. If it were just his chosen people that this book was going to focus on, we wouldn't have Ruth. She's a Gentile. She's a Moabitess. She's outside of the covenant. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3 says, No Ammonite or Moabite shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. So the law says keep out, and God's going to redeem his people. He's going to break into time and space. He's going to break into human history, and he's going to say, where the law says keep out, I'm going to fulfill it so that grace says welcome home. We need to learn how to interpret stories. We need the whole Bible. This is what J.C. Rowell says. It takes a, the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. We need the book of Ruth. Number four. Number four. So number one, we have Ruth is God's word. Number two, it's a very powerful story. Number three, Ruth teaches us how to interpret stories. And number four, we all experience difficulties and delights. Life is made up of difficulties and delights. This is how life works. We need to be prepared for suffering, for trials, for tragedies, and for triumphs. You're going to have great high moments of exaltation, encouragement, jubilation. You're going to have low moments. Uh, when we studied the book of Psalms together, we found out that the majority of the book of Psalms are lament psalms. And as some of my students so eloquently put it, when I ask them, what does that mean if 150 psalms, the majority of those 150 psalms are lament psalms, they say it means that life stinks. Say, yep, life can be really, really challenging. God knows that, right? Studied it again this morning. Creation and then the fall. Life is challenging. You're going to have many moments of tragedy. And just like this book begins, just a few verses in with tragedy, maybe you're going through a tragic experience right now. Maybe you're going through a delightful experience right now. The book ends with that. But we need to know how to go through these moments well. The question that we're going to ask ourselves constantly in the book of Ruth is, is Naomi correct when she said, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me? Is God's hand anywhere in this book? Is God's hand behind the suffering? Is God's hand behind the tragedy? Or is God's hand only behind the good things that happen at the end? Are bitter moments in our lives ultimately going to be used by God for good? It's like vanilla extract, right? I remember growing up, 
thought I was completely lied to because I like vanilla, and I saw this little bottle called vanilla extract, and I thought, this just must be the best vanilla juice in the world. So I open it up, take a little sip. No, don't ever do that. Just coughed up a lung. Don't do that. I thought, I just remember looking going, I've been lied to. This said vanilla, and I ate some form of poison. That was disgusting. But if you just take a little bit of vanilla and you put it into whatever you're cooking, it's going to come out sweet. How does that work? I don't know. I don't know cooking. But I know how it works in God's world. God brings bitter things into our lives, and as he mixes it up in our lives, out comes something sweet. And as believers, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have that promise that that will always be the case. It might not be in this life, but it will always be the case that in the end it will be turned for a sweet purpose. We're going to look at uh, William Cooper is a hymn writer, wrote uh, many hymns that we know. There's a fountain filled with blood. A bunch of different hymns that we love that we sing at our church. We're going to start singing one that we've sung a couple times before, but we're going to try and get this ingrained in our system. It's called God Moves in Mysterious Ways. He says this, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the seas and rides upon the storm. Deep in unsearchable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. So judge not the Lord by feeble, feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. This book starts out with a frowning providence. It's bitter from the get-go. But as we work our way through it, you start to see God's smile. The corners of his mouth start turning up as he works out the smiling will behind that bitter providence. Can we trust and love the God who has dealt us pain and suffering? This is the question that this book is going to answer. Number five, Ruth shows the comforting doctrine of providence. Ruth shows the comforting doctrine of providence. Now, when I say the word providence, for us, we're close to a hospital called Providence, or maybe if you're in third grade, you think of the capital of Rhode Island. But providence, biblically, is a precious doctrine that I hope you will know, love, cherish, and memorize by the time we're done with this study. J.I. Packer says it this way, the doctrine of providence teaches Christians that they are never in the grip of blind forces, of fortune, chance, luck, or fate. It teaches them that all that happens to them is divinely planned, and each event comes as a new summons to trust Obey and rejoice, knowing that all is for one's spiritual and eternal good. Providence is the outworking of Romans 8.28. God's going to cause all things to work together for your good, even the difficult moments, especially the difficult moments. And that's why Spurgeon says, Providence is a pillow on which the believer can rest their heads. I pray that providence becomes a pillow for you over the next couple weeks and months that whatever you're going through, you can rest your head on God's perfect sovereignty and sometimes frowning providence, but the way that he's going to work it out to bring blessing. Those fearful clouds that are dark, they're going to break with blessing on your head.
This book teaches us how miraculous providence is. I, I love the book of Ruth because the book of Ruth has no Red Sea parting, has no crazy miracles, has no external signs and wonders, and yet there are miracles happening almost on every uh, page, every verse that we're going to see. There's miracles behind everything that's happening. So many people today want signs and wonders that are external, that are visible, that are tangible. And they forget that the providence of God is miraculous in the way that he works. If you're looking for amazing signs and wonders, then you're going to miss the miraculous nature of a hidden providence. So I want us to learn about God's providence, and I want us to feel the sweetness of providence's pillow underneath our heads. Number six, Number six, why are we going to study this book? Because this book is about love and romance. Everybody loves a good love story. Uh, you guys remember the show Kids Say the Darndest Things? Remember that? It's, it's had a couple iterations over the course of uh, time. They were asked, there were two kids that were asked the question, how does true love happen? A nine-year-old boy answered by saying, falling in love is like an avalanche. You just have to run for your life. And then one little girl, a nine-year-old girl, said, no one's sure how love happens, but I've heard it has something to do with how you smell. Um, she's not half wrong, because even Naomi says, hey, Ruth, before you go see Boaz, why don't you wash up? You know, let's smell good. We've heard terrible love stories. Um, one of my favorite turns of a poem is, roses are red, violets are blue, daffodils cost 30 bucks. So will dandelions do? <laughs> If you need any dandelions, I've got a lot at my house. So come on over, pick a dandelion. We all love a good fairy tale. We all love a good love story. But we know that most of the love stories, if not all of the love stories that we're watching on TV or we're watching on the movie screen or reading in a book, we, we love it and we go, oh, that's sweet. But we know it's never going to happen that way. We know they don't come true. And that's why I love this book, because one fairy tale did. One fairy tale did come true. It's right here. J. Vernon McGee said, The book of Ruth reads like a novel, but it's totally nonfiction. It reads like this beautiful love story that had to have been made up, but it's real. This is one of the most amazing, beautiful, romantic short stories ever. And this story, unlike Judges, praise the Lord, ends with, and they all lived happily ever after. This is a beautiful story. It's not a dopey romance. It's not a pathetic romance. It's deep. It's beautiful. And everybody loves a good love story. This one beats them all. So I want us to see the breathtaking moments as well as the difficult, sometimes dangerous moments inside of this love story. Number seven, you just write down biblical manhood and womanhood. What does it mean to be a real man and a real woman? We need the book of Ruth to teach us this. Biblical manhood and biblical womanhood in a day and age where we are so confused that the roles of men and women are constantly under attack and a lot more today than, than I've ever experienced, just always under attack. So we need stories like this that elevate the magnificent meaning of biblical manhood and womanhood. We need heroes like Ruth. We need heroes like Boaz. And we're going to see them on display as we go through this study. And finally, number eight. So number one, God's word. Ruth is God's word. So we're going to study scripture together. Number two, it's a powerful story. Number three, Ruth teaches us how to interpret stories. Number four, we all experience difficulties and delights. Number five, Ruth shows us the comforting doctrine of providence. Number six, we love a good romantic love story. 
Number seven, we need uh, heroes in biblical manhood and womanhood. We need to know those roles. And finally, number eight, and the whole point of the book of Ruth and the whole point of the Bible is we need to see the glory of Jesus, our Redeemer. We need to see the glory of Jesus, our Redeemer. Ruth is about the work of God in the darkest of times to prepare the world for the glories of Jesus. We're going to see this idea of a kinsman redeemer. We read about it. Boaz is Ruth's redeemer, Naomi's redeemer. The kinsman redeemer, it had to be a relative. Jesus became our relative. That's the glory of the incarnation. He had to become like us in order to redeem us. That's what Christmas is all about. He wasn't forced to redeem us. Boaz wasn't forced to redeem Ruth. It was an option. Jesus wasn't forced. It was an option. And out of love, he did. And he did it when we had nothing to help our cause, just like Boaz redeemed Ruth when she had nothing to help her out. Why should she be redeemed? She had all reasons not to be redeemed. That's why the other closer relative says, no, I'm not going to partake of that. I don't need any other problems in my life. This is going to be hard. I don't need that. Brothers and sisters, the relationship between you and Jesus is a beautiful love story. I don't know when the gospel became this emotionless transaction. Jesus justifies us. The cross, our sin, boom, on his shoulders, we get his righteousness, done. The gospel is a beautiful love story. Yes, it's a transaction, but it's not an emotionless one. And if you think it's an emotionless one, it's going to be hard to understand the, the verse in 1 John that we love him because he first loved us. It's not we love him because he first gave us a transaction of himself. We love him because he loved us. He had an affection for us. Again, J. Vernon McGee says, earlier treatments create a view of redemption that was rather cold transaction. And a thousand times I say no. Redemption is the love story of a kinsman who neither counted the cost nor figured up the profit and loss, but for joy paid an exorbitant price for the one that he loved. The book of Ruth declares that redemption is not a business transaction. It is a love story. Jesus, our Redeemer, is going to save us not just from the hardships in life, but from sin and from death to buy us out of the slave market of sin and death. He redeems. He redeems even the, the hardest moments in our lives, bringing beauty out of ashes. He is our Redeemer who constantly, continually steps into the worst moments of our human existence. And he pulls us out. He saves us from those circumstances, not because of our goodness, but because of his goodness. He brings redemption. So this book shows us that in all of human history, even in its darkest hours, they serve to magnify the glory of God and his grace. And in strange and surprising ways, this book, though it's about a thousand years before the cross, is going to actually magnify what happens at the cross and glorify Christ's saving work. So, eight reasons. So much more could be said. Uh, we learn about living a godly life in the midst of an un ungodly culture. We learn about staying pure when we're surrounded by impurity. We, we learn about not allowing culture to rewrite our character. We learn about letting our character influence our culture. But just preparing for next Sunday, I want us to think these people are real people. What would Boaz have thought before this book was written? Would he be thinking, okay, uh, I'm incredibly wealthy. 
Apparently, he's decently good-looking. And I don't have a wife. God, why haven't you given me a wife? What are you waiting for? I, I feel like I've got all my ducks in a row here. What are you waiting for? Where's my wife? Naomi's probably asking in the early verses of this book, why did God take my husband away? Why? Why did he take my husband away? If only she could wait, and if only she could read the ending before it was ever written, she would know, oh, I know why. But she's stuck in that moment. Boaz saying, why don't I have a wife? Naomi saying, why was my husband taken away from me? Ruth is probably wondering as she follows Naomi, what kind of God have I decided to follow? Elimelech, before he died, might have thought, I shouldn't have taken my family to Moab. I've destroyed everything. There's no hope left over because of my one rash decision. And if you're here this morning and you feel that way, God, what are you up to? What's going on? Why hasn't this happened? Or why has this happened? Or if you're asking the question, have I destroyed any possibility of a good life moving forward? Have I... Have I lost all hope because of my past decisions? Can God redeem any of this? The answer is found in the book of Ruth, and the answer is yes. God redeems all of it. And if you would trust him, if you would wait upon him, brothers and sisters, he's writing your story. The same God who wrote Ruth's story is writing your story. It's not done yet, but we do know the ending. So trust him as he is still penning your story today and cling to the goodness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you so much for the glories that we see in this book. These characters had absolutely no idea how you were going to bring about redemption. And frankly, neither do we sometimes. We don't know how you're going to redeem a moment. How could this possibly be used for good, we say? And then you do. You make it work. You bring beauty out of ashes. And so I pray that we would stand in awe of your glorious sovereign providence and trust you. You plant your footsteps in the seas, like William Cooper says. You're moving, but it's hard to see. When your foot steps on the water, instantly your footprint goes away. But we know you're moving. So may we trust in your kindness and goodness towards us this day. And help us to do so all the more because of our study of Ruth. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Redeemer. Amen.